What's up, church? Hey, we're going to dive right in. If you are here uh, for the first time, uh, we are finishing a series in Hebrews. Uh, this is Hebrews chapter 13. So if you have your Bible, I encourage you to turn there. If you don't have a Bible at all, if you'll stop by our resource area, we'd love to get you one. Uh, but verse 1 in Hebrews chapter 30, uh, 13, verse 1 simply says, Let brotherly love continue. Let brotherly love continue. Now, in here, uh, many of us, we, we understand what love is, but we don't always understand exactly what context it is. So uh, love is described three ways in the scriptures. Number one, it's a agape type of love. That's a, the love that God has for his people. It's an unconditional love. Regardless of what you do or uh, what you have done, God loves you and he cares for you. It's a, a love that cannot be broken. It's an everlasting type of love, a love that he has for his people, a covenant relationship regardless of word or deed. And that's the type of love that God has for us. That's not the type of love that the writer of Hebrews is encouraging us to have for one another. He says, brotherly love. There's another type of love that's the eros type of love. That's kind of the passionate, cupid flying, shooting love that you and I can have for people in love. And it's particularly found within uh, relationships, a man and a woman, a, a love that kind of draws out our appetite in a sense. That's the eros type of love. But here is a word that in the Greek literally just means brotherly. It's the idea of a camaraderie. It's, a, it's comrades. It's fighting the good fight. It's running the race. It's two or three people gathering together and saying, hey, we're going to just let love continue. It's the uh, binding idea of a war or um, the Christian brotherhood. It's the army of God. It's the army of men in trenches. It's a brotherly love. It's the I got your back, you got my back. It's a football team type of love. It's a soccer team. It's a cheerleading team. Well, do they love each other, cheerleaders, y'all? <clears throat> Some of y'all don't think that's funny, huh? <clears throat> it's, the, it's the I got your back kind of love. That's the idea. And it says, and let that continue. Now, what's interesting is, is that it should continue for who? Well, verse 2 says, and don't neglect to show hospitality, hospitality to strangers. For therefore, or thereby, some have entertained angels unawares. Now, we're going to get to that in just a second, because you're like, whoa, 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 what a second? Wait, what does that say? Don't neglect to show hospi uh, hospitality to strangers, for some have, what? Entertained angels. Well, let me explain something first. It says, let brotherly love continue and show hospitality to strangers. The emphasis is this. You and I have no problem showing brotherly love to people that we know, comrades. The people that we work together, that we, uh, we strive together with, but we do oftentimes neglect to show hospitality to strangers. And then I want to emphasize that even more because hospitality to strangers are people that you don't necessarily know, that maybe you're, uh, maybe you're acquaintances with them, but you're not friends, you're not brothers. For instance, uh, Kelly and I, not too long ago, we had a, a lady over to our house, and uh, we invited her over at 8.45 at night. That gives us enough time to put our kiddos to bed, and uh, although that never really works out, does it? And so she knocks on our door at, at about 8.40, and she comes in, and I, I looked at her and I said, we're so glad to have you. If you would just come in here, we're going to kind of set you at the bar or whatever. But our kids, unfortunately, are still not asleep. And so we dealt with kids and stuff, and the night just got away from us, and we left her sitting in that bar for three hours. Now, that really didn't happen, okay? 
But that's what it looks like when you neglect hospitality to strangers. Now, what did we do? We did have an issue with our kiddos getting out of bed. And so we invited her in. We said, listen, uh, we've got a few more things to kind of uh, help get them down. You know, they need some Benadryl or something. No, I'm just kidding. Um, kinda. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I said, but hey, here's the deal. We would love to get you a cup of coffee. We'd love for you to come in. Do, do you like cream with coffee? Yeah, we love cream. And I said, well, here's the deal. Uh, I know that you're going through a lot, and that's why we're here. We're talking. I, when I'm going through a lot, I love chocolate. Would you like chocolate? And she's like, I would love some chocolate, you know? And, and so we, we're just hospitable to it. We don't know her all that well, but we, we began just getting her comfortable. We put our kids to bed, and we talked, and we talked, and we talked, and we talked. Literally, after midnight, she finally left our house. And we're no longer strangers, but here's why I want to put this emphasis to you real quick. One of the things that God's really been convicting me about in our church is this. I think we let brotherly love continue. I think if we're in the trenches together, we serve together, we love each other pretty well. But oftentimes what happens is, is that we start getting to the point where we love our brothers that we can neglect the strangers. And there's some of you that you're, you're here for the very first time. And, and don't be wrong, you, you probably got your hand shook more than you may have ever gotten at any other church. And there's probably some people that talk to you. But let me go beyond that for those of you that, that you're here, you're members of our fellowship at Stone Point. Let me ask you this. Outside of the acquaintances that you have in your row or your little section, the row in front of you, the row behind you, how many people did you offer a cup of coffee to today? How many, how many people did you say, hey, can I get you some chocolate donuts? Because I'll tell you, listen to me, church, here's our advantage. We have coffee and we have donuts. And we should use them to not neglect showing hospitality to strangers. Why? Because, therefore, some have entertained angels unawares. Now, I'm not presenting the case that there's an angel among us. And nor is the writer of Hebrews. That's not the point that he's making. What he is saying is what Jesus said in Matthew 25, verse 40. And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it for me. So he goes, Do you see someone that's thirsty? We'll give them a drink. Do you see someone who's hungry? We'll give them some food. Do you see one that's naked? We'll clothe them. The idea is, is go above and beyond knowing that what you do for them, you do for Jesus. And so the picture of this in the church is, is that instead of just saying, hey, I'm glad you're here, and just this casual glimpse of a conversation, what would it look like if you and I went above and beyond in meeting people? That we shared our name. You have a name tag, and you should use it to your benefit. Why? Because you can get to know them a lot faster. Hey, how are you, John? How did you know my name? Well, you have a name tag on. It happens all the time. It's wonderful. Then strike up a conversation. Have genuine fellowship. How do you do that? You let love continue. You don't neglect to show hospitality to everyone, but especially strangers. People who are new for the first time. People that you don't necessarily know. And for many of us in here, that's hard. Why? Because love requires us to do something. It requires us to get out of our seat and to move. And for so many of us in here, what we want to do is we want to come in and we, hey, give us a message, let's sing a few songs, and I'm going to move out. And unfortunately, because of our space limitations here at Stone Point over the last several years, that's the, cre that's the kind of the culture that we've created for ourselves. Hey, come in, stay for a little while, and then get out because we've got a lot more people coming. 
And that's why we're actually making some of the expansions and not because we need more building because this is just a resource, but we want to help create a culture in which brotherly love continues and we don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. And so that's the emphasis that you and I need to put on it. And then verse 3, it simply says, And remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you were also in the body. Now, in our culture, in our mindset, we read verse 3 and we go, Okay, so we should have a prison ministry. And we should go and we should go into the prisons and we could share our faith and do that. That's not at all what it says. Matter of fact, if you look at the very last part of verse 3, it says you're going to care for those who are in prison and those who are mistreated. Why? Because they're a part of the body. The idea is, is that these people are being persecuted and mistreated for their faith. It is the Paul and Silas. It is the, uh, the Timothy. It is the people who have gone through hardship, persecution, and have been locked up or jailed for their faith. Now, you and I, we don't really know that culture, and we don't really understand that, but right now as we meet, there are brothers and sisters all across the world who are meeting in underground churches, meaning if the, the door was knocked down and people barged in, they would take them and they would put them in prison, if not kill them. They are persecuted for faith, and for us as Christians, and particularly as he's writing to this Hebrew culture, he goes, don't neglect to care for those who are not with you, that could be potentially being mistreated for the faith. They could be locked up. They could be jailed. They could be hiding out because of persecution. Love them. Encourage them. Don't forget that they're a part of the body. Then he says, and don't forget these things. And he just begins to kind of walk through some things. He says, one, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let marriage be, uh, be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Now, I want to make an emphasis here. The enemy wants to do everything he can to encourage sex outside of marriage and everything he can, everything he can to discourage sex within marriage. I'm gonna, that's up on the screen for you. Look at that. The enemy wants to do everything he can to encourage sex outside of marriage while doing everything he can to prevent sex inside of marriage. So listen, there's some parents in here that you're already getting comfortable because you've got your sixth grader sitting next to you. Okay, now listen, your sixth grader has heard the word sex before. And we live in a culture right now where sex is being perverted. And we've lost the foundational elements of what the gospel has called marriage and family to be about. And I encourage you to note that what we oftentimes see is not what God wants us to be a part of. Matter of fact, next week we're starting a new series, which I'm absolutely pumped about. It's going to be a three-week series called Media and My Family. And it's really focusing on me and my family. And what it is, is it's about the things that we oftentimes view and look at and how how much access we have on our phones, our iPads, and even our three- and five-year-olds are watching just through technology. Our world has progressed in such a way that the enemy now has a foothold in many of our homes. And why? It's because we've allowed things in our marriage to be brought in that God didn't intend. And so what that means by is this, is there's many of us in here, families, particularly husbands and wives, that your sex life is not good because you've you truly have, in some ways, mangled and distorted God's view of what that is. And what I mean by that is that you have either longed for it outside of your marriage relationship, or you've ceased it in the marriage relationship. And so here's what I'm encouraging you to do. Listen, the idea of this is that we would protect it. It is for this reason that a man leaves his father and mother. Uh, this reason that a woman leaves his father and mother. They cleave together to become one flesh. And so it means anything that does not promote you, God, and the gospel 
should be not a part of the marriage. And that could be anything that you view, anything that you bring into it that perverts it. At the same time, there's many of us that we're longing for things out there, and instead of watering the grass that we're standing on, we long for greener pastures. And so the question is, what would it look like if we just got really, really intensive about caring for our own marriage and having good sex within our marriage? Now, many of you didn't think that you would hear that today at church, right? And that's the struggle that many of us have because churches don't want to talk about this anymore. Because why? Because sex has become such a perversion to culture that we think it's a nasty thing to talk about. But actually, it's a gift from God. that In the parameters and the confines of marriage biblically, it is a gift from God that allows us to multiply and fill the earth and to see that God's provision for us is good, that he did not leave a man alone, that he provided a helper. It is a picture of God, the gospel, and the Trinity when done right. And when not, it's a picture of perversion, distrust, brokenness, and it gives the enemy a foothold. And it's something the church does not talk about much. And it's something that for many of us in here, if we're not careful, we just flow along with culture in this issue. But the writer says, no, protect that. And then verse 5, he says, and keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. That's another struggle that we have in our culture. It's a, it's a struggle that obviously has been a, a, an age-old struggle. It's not something that we just now are facing here in America, although it is certainly a struggle. And it says, keep your what, life free from money because money's evil. That's what it says. No. But that has oftentimes become the idea in the American church is that if somebody has lots of wealth, then they're, they're corrupt. No, 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 no. Money is an object. It's just like a brick. It's just like a baseball bat. It's just like a golf club. Now, a brick, you can use it, and you can build a nice house. A baseball bat, you can use it to hit home runs. If you're me, you can use a golf club to hit one off into the rough, right? <laughs> but you can also take those, and you can distort their, their, their meaning, their objects. And what you could do is with a brick is you could throw it through a window. You could take a bat, and you could beat a mailbox. You could take a golf club and hit someone over the head. And as an object in which you and I have full control over, we can use it for good. The purpose is designed to be. Or we can use it for bad. And that's the same exact thing with money. The problem is our hearts become corrupt when we love money too much. When we believe that that's a tool and a resource that we have to have to survive. And that's the picture that the writer here is saying. No, he goes, no, free your life from the love of money. Quit pursuing it. Quit making every decision you have based off of that. And there are some of us in here that we know the reality. You have to have money to survive. But the question is, how much money do you have to have survive? And that's the question. Then he goes and he tacks on this thought and he says, for he has said, I will never leave nor forsake you. And it's interesting that he ties this phrase that we've heard so many times to this. Because God said this whole idea of I will never leave nor forsake you. He said it to Jacob in Genesis 28. He said it to Israel in Deuteronomy 31. He said it to Joshua in Joshua 1. He said it to Solomon in 1 Chronicles 28. But he's now also saying it through this Hebrew writing. He goes, I'm never going to leave nor forsake you. And what he's saying is this. He goes, you and I either have to trust God or we don't. But trusting God doesn't just mean in difficult times. Like, oh, man, I'm experiencing hardship and this, this thing that won't go away. Like the idea of 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says, there's a thorn in my flesh. I plead with the Lord three times. He would remove it, and he hasn't. So may God be sufficient in my weakness. That's not the idea. He goes, no, you have to trust God in all things, even when it comes to what you're content with. That's actually what Paul meant in 1 Corinthians, uh, Corinthians 4.13. What did he say? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 
But before that, he goes, I know what it's like to have a lot. I know what it's like to have little because I'm going to be content with all things. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the difference. It's not about running hurdles. It's not about taking an exam. That's not what it's talking about. It's saying, I know that Christ will never leave nor forsake me. I know that I can be content with all things. Why? Because he'll never leave nor forsake me. I know that there's a kingdom that will never be shaken. I know that even though things here seem to be shaky, I know things here seem to be pretty rocky, I can find myself gazing upon other things if I'll keep my eyes fixed upon the author and perfecter of our faith, Lord Jesus, Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, because the great cloud of witnesses has come before me, that I know that he's sufficient. I know he'll never leave nor forsake me. Now, what's interesting is, too, in this culture, a perversion of money is oftentimes to a perversion of sex. And so I don't think it's uncommon that you see that throughout history. It, it's this perversion that's happening in our culture. And listen, we and you and I need to know who God is. So verse 6 says, who is he? We can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Isn't that why we're here today? I mean, we're literally here celebrating a 15, uh, not celebrating, but remembering a 15-year anniversary. And I don't know if there's a more fitting text that could have landed on today than this one. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And I want you to understand that every adversity that you face, every circumstance that you struggle to prevail in, even death does nothing but take the Christian, the believer in God, and make him closer to God. Now, you, you might shake your head and you might nod at that, but do you agree with that? Because listen, what, what I'm essentially saying is, is every piece of adversity that you have, every circumstance, every single struggle that you have, even death, should do nothing but bring you closer as a Christian to God. See, for many of us, we think, oh, well, no, that's when we run from God. No, if you are rock solid in your faith, it should draw you near to him, even to the point of death. Why? Because we know that even upon our death, Paul says to be absent of the body is to be present with the Lord. It means the worst that man can do to me is not affect my circumstances. The worst that man can do to me is not to kill me. Why? Because even if you take my life, all you've done is ushered me into the presence of holy God in which there is no more pain, no more disorder, no more dysfunction, no more news that we're tired of watching. We are home. We are free at last. And it's become a reality in our culture, and I've heard it said so many times, man, I, I, I am. I'm excited about going to heaven, and, and that's going to be good. I, I mean, that's, that's going to be exciting, but I just want a few more years with my grandkids. Or, hey, I, I just want a little more time with my family. I just want to train, train my boys up a little bit. Or, hey, I, you know, I just want to have sex for the first time. That would be nice, you know, before I go to heaven. And we have somehow, we have lessened the, the reality of heaven to an idea that here on earth is something that's going to be similar. And the reality is, is that it's not. Here is more pain, disorder, dysfunction. Why? Because the prince of the power of the air is in control. There is authority that has been handed over to the enemy for a time in which he can bring great distrust and corruption here. And what's interesting is, is we've made this our playground. And the writer says, no, 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 no. We should long for a day that we say, what can do man do to me? Why? Because we know that there's more in store. That even here, the things that we love and we long to see here are not even a glimpse, not even a mirror, not even a shadow of the heavenly realities to come. And so we should long and live for that reality. 
And then verse 7, it says, and remember your leaders. Now, I love this part, so I'm going to really camp out here, okay? <laughs> remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Now, I'm not going to camp out too much, but look what it says. It says, look at their life and imitate their faith. And then it goes on. It says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I just want to make sure that you understand that not everyone can be a pastor. Not everybody can be a leader within the church. And I know that we need godly leaders within the church, but just as much as we need godly leaders, we need godly followers. And what's happened in the church is the reality that many people want to be the pastor. Many people want to be the leaders. Matter of fact, one of the questions we hear so much is, well, who, who's really in charge? Is it, is it deacons? Is it, is, it, is it a group of elders? Is it what? And listen, one of the things that makes us, in a sense, a Bible church is that I disagree with church polity in many ways throughout other denominational churches. Now, listen, I want it to be very clear that I believe wholeheartedly in accountability and integrity. But I do not believe that people who run lawn businesses need to be leading the church. I believe that biblically God has called people to pastor, to elder, to shepherd the church. And as people, if you say, I believe in them, I believe in their lifestyle, I know they're the same on the golf course or in the hunting stand as they are up on stage when they're teaching and preaching. I know they're faithful to their wives. I know that they love their children. I know that they're hospitable, that they're worthy of the honor of being called pastor, leader, shepherd, elder of the church. Then you have to decide, am I going to follow them? And what's happened is, is that for so long, we've had so much division created in our churches because we want godly leaders, but we don't want to be godly followers. And, and for a church to be the way that God created it to be, you have to have both. You have to have godly leaders, and you have to have godly followers. So a godly leader, let me ask you a question. A godly leader, can he be left to his own devices? Should he, should he live a frivolous life? Should he spend money as if money grows on trees? No. I mean, that, and that's really the question that you and I have to ask is, do you believe in, in leadership? And so that's a common question that we ask around here. When somebody says something, we go, well, ultimately what you're asking is, is do you trust our leadership? And they go, no, no, I didn't ask that at all. I, I'm not saying I don't trust you. Then what are you saying? You're saying that there's a better way. And listen to me, I understand that in this room there are multiple opinions. I also understand that there are many times that you second-guess every decision we make. That's common. I second-guess many of the decisions that we make. That is the reality. I am a fallible man. The only leadership that we have in this church is God, and we trust him. And there are some steps that we've made that, man, I look back and I go, I wish we had stepped this way. But we, with sincerity and love, felt like that's the direction that God wanted to go. And it has always paid off for us. But the reality is, is this, is that God has to lead this thing, and we've got to keep our eyes fixed on him, and we've got to trust that he set up leadership in our churches, not just this one, for a purpose. And so I just encourage you, and I say this, if you don't agree with the leadership of this church, that is not a problem. Not a problem. But you do need to find a church in which you can agree with leadership. And that you can get behind them and that you can love them and support them and encourage them. Why? Because that's scriptural. Then we verse 8, it says, Jesus Christ is today forever. He's, he's the same yesterday, today, forevermore. So we know 
that he is the same. We're not, there's a lot of commentators that they spend a lot of time making this more than it is, but here's the deal. Jesus is God. God is the same. He, he's, he is the Lord God that stays, he remains forever, okay? He's the Lord God that does not change. Jesus is God, and so he does not change. He is the first and the last. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He is the same. Verse 8, so, so don't, let be away, don't be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have, been benefited by, uh, which have not benefited those who uh, devoted themselves to them. The idea here is that it's about to take a shift. And what he's saying is this. He goes, look for godly leaders. Why? Because they ought to train you and equip you in the faith. Okay? God is the same forever, so he's not trying to trick you. And what he's basically saying is, is now I want you to see the idea of what that means. He goes, don't be led away by strange teachings. If you look at a a Hebrew follower, they have a, a dilemma. They have a law-based system that was worth, it had lots of good works, foods that you could eat, foods you couldn't eat, things you had to perform, things you couldn't perform, priests that had to go before you, and things that they had to do. And then you have us, and we go, we don't need any of that anymore because we have a perfect high priest. And so he goes, the idea here is you need to follow a leader that will teach you the scriptures that you can trust in their lifestyle because Jesus is the same forever. He's not trying to confuse you. He's simply trying to help you see that there was a picture that pointed people to God called the law. And there's a, another idea in the new covenant that doesn't just point, paint a picture of God. It gets you, you get to experience him. And that's called the new covenant. It's grace. And so you need pastors to point you towards that. Matter of fact, Ephesians 4. 11 through 16, I'm going to read it pretty fast. It just says, And he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building of the body, until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, a mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, craftiness, deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way in him who is head, the Christ. Okay? So the idea is we should move from milk to meat. We should grow up. It's Hebrews chapter 5 and 6. It's, it's, we can no longer be infants. Why? Because from the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when every part is working for it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The idea is this, is that pastors are here to help you know doctrine and to not be tossed to and fro, to protect you and care for you. And it goes on and talks about that a little bit more. But the biggest deal is to move you forward in your faith. And we do that best by you understanding grace. Now you go, okay, I get that. That's grace. And we're going to talk about that for a second. But Brandon, y'all sure do push us a lot towards being in journey groups and serving. And it doesn't feel like there's a lot of grace there sometimes. Well, here's what I want you to understand. My only job is to equip you. And the only reason I ever pull you along or try to spur you on towards that is because I know that the body of Christ can only be what God intends to be if everyone does their part. And so the reality of it in the church and any church you've ever been a part of, it is never going to function fully and properly unless every person does what God has intended them to do. Can you think about that for just a second? So you're telling me that as awesome as I believe Stone Point Church is, that we have not even come close to reaching the fullness and the capacity that God intends our church to be because there are some people that have not utilized their gift in service or plugged into the body. That's the reality. That's what what this text means. 
And so the idea of us spurring you on and equipping you is so that our church, our body here, is everything that God intended it to be. And one of the ways we do that is protect you from false doctrine. Matter of fact, verse 10, it says, For we, meaning you and I, that believe in Christ, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat at all. Then verse 11, this is awesome, so hang with me. It's a little, it's a little wordy. Verse 11, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by a high priest is a sacrifice for sin and burned outside of the camp. So Jesus also served it outside of the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Now I want to remind you, in the Old Testament, you had a priest, and you had an appropriate sacrifice. On the Day of Atonement, a high priest would go, and he would cleanse himself, and then he would go in, he would offer the blood of a bull first for him and his sins and his family's sins, and then he would walk in, and he would offer down a goat, which would lay his life down, for all of Israel. And that bloodshed would cover their sin for a year. But here's what they would do. After that, that sacrifice, they never saw that lamb, that goat, as worthy as a body. So the blood was poured out and it fulfilled its purpose. Then they would take that body and they would take it outside of the gates of the camp and they would burn the body of that sacrifice. You see? So they take the benefit of only blood. The writer of Hebrews goes, but here's Jesus. Jesus, he goes outside of the camp in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Then look at verse 13. Therefore, let us go to him outside of the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Here's the idea. The Old Testament law, rituals, religious activity, all of those things, they keep you confined inside the camp. It keeps you to a rules-based activity. I got to go to church on Sunday. I got to do this. I got to do that. And if I don't do those, then maybe I'm not going to find God. That's the idea of sprinkling of blood only. But Jesus, his body was offered outside of the camp. And it's, it's not by coincidence. It's not some irony. It is a cognitive decision that a holy God made to have his son go outside of the camp. So it would be no mistake for a, a Hasidic loyal Jew to make an understanding that you have to go outside of this religious-based system to find grace and eat at the altar. So you get a choice. You can go to the tent where there's religious activity and there's a priest, or you can go to the altar and where there is a table laid out for you, and it includes both what? Bread and wine. Body and blood. On the inside of the camp, it was a disgrace to have body. It was great to have blood. On the outside of the camp where there's grace, Jesus' body was both broken and he shed his blood. Interesting that Jesus said what? Here's this body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Here's the cup of the new covenant shed for you. Drink in remembrance of me. And so every time that we take communion, we are remembering a grace-based table laid out for the believer in which we experience both body and blood outside of the camp, a camp filled with grace and love, hospitality. That's the reason that we do all that we do. Why? 1 John 4, 19, we love others because Christ has first loved us. It's a grace-based relationship. You understand? And then verse 14, he goes, so I want you to set your eyes ahead. This is all good stuff. And then he goes, and for we, we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. He goes, the reality is that this stuff is going to perish. And he's talking to a group of Jews who their hub is Jerusalem. 
Now in 70 AD, just a few years after this, Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. Nero's going to set the thing on fire, blaming on Christians. The city's going to be destroyed. And what he's saying is, he goes, there's going to be a city that's destroyed. And he's literally speaking of this one. It's, it's the idea of typical prophetic. I mean, you, you know it's about to be destroyed. And so he goes, so you better keep your eyes fixed on what? A city that's to come. It's Hebrews chapter 12. This will be shaken and burned up, but there is a kingdom that will never be shaken and burned up. So let me ask you a question because we're on a day and age where we're about to watch some athletes sit when a flag is raised. And everything in you as a patriot says, what are you doing? And it just just blows you up, doesn't it? Yeah? I mean... But here's the deal. What if this great nation was taken away? I mean, in reality, what if you and I didn't have all the things that you and I know we had? What if the sacrifices, all the lives that have been laid down, no longer constituted this great land that you and I know? The the goal of this, he goes, don't fix your eyes so much on that that you miss the city to come. And this is a great dilemma for us because are we Christian first or patriot first? And for me, I'm Christ first and patriot next. Do I believe in God and country and freedom? Do I believe in liberty? Yes. Do I like people to make right choices? Yes, but I can't control everybody. What I can do is control me. That's what I tell my kids all the time. You can't control them, but who can you control? You. And I'll tell you, Never will people be disgraced by your actions if you know your actions are based on Christ first. And so I encourage you, where are you, keep, where are you putting your hope? It should be on Christ. That's what he said. There are many of you that you've got your eyes set on Jerusalem. What happens when Jerusalem's destroyed? Are your eyes set on a city to come? And that's the idea. And then verse 13, uh, 15 says, Through him let us continue to offer a sacrifice of praise that is the fruit of his lips and acknowledge his name. The idea, he goes, may we sing to God because he has a kingdom that never be shaken. May we profess the lips of his praise. Now, here's the deal. We have no problem professing the lips of our praise to people. Matter of fact, I mean, like Prescott today. I mean, some of you are so excited. Like, okay, Romo's finally on the bench. Prescott, man, he's going to lead us to a Super Bowl. Let me tell you, you're going to be disappointed, okay? <laughs> but the reality in our culture is, is that we have no problem professing the lips of praise to people. But for whatever reason, we struggle to profess the lips of praise to God. We can, in many ways, profess the lips of praise to people and over-exaggerate. You can do it about me. Reality is, is that I'm a human, fallible, sinful man saved by God's grace, and I will fail you. The reality is we have a God whose kingdom will never shake. He'll never leave nor forsake you, and he will never fail you. So I get it. There's some of you in here that you're like, nah, I can't even listen to you, dude. You failed me. And I, I, I'm sorry. If I know that, come to me. I want to confess and repent. But we have a God whose kingdom will never fail you. His city will never fail. And guess, listen, he loves you. He cares for you. And, and never, ever will he neglect you. We declare the fruit of our, our lips to him. We can never over-exaggerate him. You can never say too much good about God. You'll never get to the point where you praise him too much. Praise him, praise him, praise him. You can praise people way too much and over-exaggerate them about God. No, you can declare the fruit of your lips, the praise of your people. And then it says, and don't neglect to do good and share what you have for such sacrifice or pleasing to God. He goes, don't just proclaim him with your lips because lip service does no one any good, right? 
He goes, your lips ought to be tied to your life. Amen? Y'all, y'all, y'all do you agree with that? Your lips ought to be tied to your life. And so he goes, don't just praise God with everything you got with your lips. Make sure that your lives fall in order. And then in verse 17, I love this, and I am going to camp out here. Obey your leaders. Submit to them. Well, man, look at this. I mean, he just set it up on a tee for us, right? Yeah, I don't like it either. I can tell. <laughs> Obey your leaders. Submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as to those who will have an account. Acts 20, Paul, he's talking to the Ephesian elders in verse 28. He goes, hey, pay, pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Christ paid the purchase for the church. Now he's forgiven leaders over it. He goes, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among you, yourselves will rise men speaking twisted things, drawing up disciples away from them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that in three years, I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Paul goes, the reality is I'm going to leave, and when I leave, there are going to be people come in, and they're going to take this church in a different direction. And there are going to be people who come in, and you're going to trust them, and then they're going to give crafty and cunning teaching. So the question is then is, well, what's the goal and what's the role of a shepherd, a pastor? The scripture says, you obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. It is a perilous thought and even a more perilous responsibility that I am accountable to God for you. And, and, and so I say this, like, if you want to pastor a church, we want to help send you. We are a church planting church, and if you go, I want to pastor, I feel like I'm called to be a pastor, a shepherd, an overseer, I'm supposed to use my gift for the teaching of the body, then we want to send you. Unfortunately, God called me here five and a half years ago to pastor this church. That's what I do with my life. Every ounce, every strength in my bones is dedicated to our church. And here's why. Because the reality has hit me in recent years that I am accountable for you. And you go, well, who's you and how do you define this? And and I've said this many times, and I want to kind of clear it up the best way I can. Who am I accountable to God? Am I accountable to God for every single person that walked in our doors today? No. Who am I accountable for? I am accountable for sheep that want to be shepherded. And the reality in the church today is not every sheep wants a shepherd. Every sheep wants green water or green uh, pasture and still waters. You all agree with that? Think about this real quickly. Every sheep wants Green pasture and still water. But not every sheep wants a pastor or a shepherd. And I'm accountable for those who want a, sh- what, a shepherd. And so all I can do is love the flock who wants to be shepherded. It is the idea of Psalm 23. It is the idea that you would lead someone towards green pasture and still waters. That though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you will fear no evil for thy rod and the staff. They shall bring you comfort. The idea is that the good shepherd is a representation of the best shepherd. Jesus says it of himself in John 10. I am the good shepherd. I am simply here to imitate him the best way I know how. And in doing that, I care for my flock. I'm accountable to God for you. And you have a choice. Look at it. It says, let them do this with joy and not with groaning. Now it's saying, and you, as a part of the flock, as a sheep, you can let your shepherds do that with joy or with groaning. Joy is is that you serve the body, that you're connected in ways that 
you agreed. And so who's a sheep here at Stone Point? A sheep at Stone Point is a functioning member that signed a membership covenant at Stone Point. That's who we view sheep as in the scripture. And you go, well, I disagree with that. And you can, that's okay. And we respectfully will agree to disagree. But a sheep is a, a member at Stone Point Church. That means that you have gone through our starting point class, that you have joined our fellowship, and then you agree that we are here to connect people to God, to others, and service in the world. That you say, I know that I need to be a part of this body, and I want to serve in any capacity that I can. I want to get plugged in. I know that I need the body more than just this time. I need to get connected with other people. So you get in a journey group. You know that it's important to reach this world because we live in a world where there is chaos and confusion. And so you say, I want people to see God. And I want to tell them about him. And so you go, that's me. That's who we're shepherding. There are some of you that you are a joy, a joy to shepherd. Like you're just a joy. Like you, you do everything above and beyond with great love for others. There are others that you bring great groaning. And why? Because it doesn't matter how hard we pull. I mean, we pull and we pull and you go, no, 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 no. <laughs> and it doesn't matter what the gate is, you've always got a reason why you can't go through it. There's a reason that you can't serve. There's a reason that you don't need a journey group. There's a re- there, and, and listen, I am accountable to God for your soul, but listen, I want you to see what the writer of Hebrews does. It's fantastic for the pastor. You can do this with joy or with groaning, but that would be no advantage to you. He goes, it is no advantage to the, the sheep to be a, a, a thorn in the flesh for their shepherd. So just as God holds me accountable for you, he's going to hold you accountable for how well you are a sheep. Isn't that something? Like, I mean, think of, I want you to think about the reality of that. Because the reality of me shepherding someone who wants to continue to live in sin and continue to do things that are not God-honoring is a difficult thing. It's a lot of hard conversations. But for you to say, I don't have to listen to you, I don't have to, that's your choice, but ultimately you have to answer for God for that. And so I just caution you that if you've ever been a part of a church split or you ever created lots of division within a church, that you would see the reality of that decision, that you would repent and that you would say, God, I'm sorry for not seeing the weight of this because I know I ought to be a part of unity. Now, let me ask you a question. Does that mean that when your leader says jump, you say how high? No, and I don't want to give you that picture at all. What I'm saying is, is the text says, if you know that there's a godly leader who trusts God and follows God, then you ought to follow them too. Amen? And then verse uh, 17, uh, it says, hey, there'd be no advantage to you. Verse 18 says, so pray for us. And he goes, hey, pray for us. For what we are, that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things, I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you sooner. The writer goes, I want to see you. Then he concludes it. And he says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you need to do his will, working us, which is pleasing in the sight, through Jesus, to whom the glory forever and ever. Amen. It's the idea of Philippians 1.6. Paul says, if, if God begins a work in you, he's going to carry it into completion. Here's the good news. If you're a sheep and you have a shepherd, and that shepherd has the ultimate shepherd. So the idea is, I can't lead you well. Our leadership can't lead you well unless we're being led by God. 
It's the same exact principle in marriage. Husbands, you can't leave your wives unless you're being led by God. Husbands, you can't lead your children unless you're being led by God. And so if you trust the leadership, then you need to know that's simply a representation of a greater shepherd, one who says, if I start something in you, I will carry it upon to completion. I will not drop you. I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Yes, even Hebrews 12 says, yes, there are some things that are going to be painful at time. All discipline is, but it reveals that you're a son, that he loves you, that he cares for you. He has a great plan for you. That's the idea of this text. And then he closes, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with any word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Doesn't seem briefly, does it? 13 weeks. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and the saints, those who come from Italy, send greetings. Grace be with you all. And that's how I want to send you out. Grace be with you all. Know that we love you and we care for you. But we want to shepherd you well. And I want to just leave you with this. How do you sum up 13 weeks of Hebrews? How do you sum up this last chapter that's talked about brotherly love and kindness and hospitality and and maintaining the relationship of marriage and sex inside the marriage and what that looks like and, hey, being free from the love of money and then talking about the legalistic idea and being free from that and now going outside of the camp and having, how do you sum all that up? So I've come up with the best I can. Hebrews, the first and last, that was a series title. If Jesus is the first and the last, live as if he's redeemed your past and given you everything you need to hold fast. Y'all like that rhyme? I liked it. (laughs) If Jesus is the first and last, if he is the first and last, live as if he's redeemed your past and given you everything you need to hold fast. Bless you, church. We love you and we want to encourage you. May I pray for you? God, we love you. We thank you for this day. And God, I pray that the reality of this text would fall heavy on our hearts. Not because we're guilty, not because we need to be better sheep, Not because we uh, need to be better shepherds, but Lord, just may we see the reality that the church is yours. And it's not something we just attend. It's not something we just do. Because your purchase and a ransom of the cross is far bigger than that. You don't want us to be caught up in legalistic attendance. You want us to live vibrant, full lives, serving the church and being united to a brotherhood every single day. Why? Because we know that this world is not our home. So we keep our eyes fixed on a home that is, is real and that will never be shaken. But Lord, we need to hold fast until that day. Help us to keep from drifting. Help us to, to see you as prominent in our lives. Help us to live radical, faith-filled lives, protecting the order of the church in a society in which seems to be getting more perverted every day. Help us to know that while we love this homeland, it is not our home. And may we live in reality of that. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.